This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have our secret weapon, the truth, as it was broadcast over CBS this week in 1942. The program focuses on the propaganda efforts of the Axis countries. The show is hosted by author Rex Stout, best known for his Nero Wolf stories and novels, but also the head of the Writers' War Board during World War II. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our secret weapon. Do you know we have one, you Americans? Do you know what it is? Well, it's simply the truth. The truth is a weapon that isn't secret in our country, but it's a big secret to the people who live in Germany, Japan, and Italy. Our enemies don't have this weapon. They don't dare let their people know the truth. Instead, they lie and lie and keep on lying. So in this program every week, we're going to expose some of these Axis lies. Our lie detective is Rex Stout, the celebrated author and chairman of the Writers' War Board and a representative of Freedom House, an organization dedicated to the rights and freedom of all men. Here is Rex Stout. Uh, it should be obvious that the United States... Beat it, Tojo. I start this program, you don't. The purpose of this program is not to prove that Nazis and Japs are liars. Everybody knows that. But it is instructive and highly important to understand their technique... Recently, they seem to have got the idea that half a lie is better than none. Take, for example, these two consecutive sentences broadcast from Berlin on August 24th, beamed at Ireland. The American operations on the Solomon Islands have come to a standstill. On the islands of Tulagi and Guadalcanal, better battles are still being fought. Now, I don't believe he thought he was putting over an Irish bull. No German would appreciate the debonair nonsense of an Irish bull. I've got a theory. He was absolutely determined to tell some kind of a lie about our operations in the Solomon Islands, but on account of conflicting Japanese reports, he didn't know what the truth was. So he made those two contradictory statements, one right after the other, sure of one of them being a lie, so he would at least be batting 500. That may sound far-fetched, but if anyone has a better theory, send it along. I'm not being flippant. Whatever else we do or don't do about the Germans, we had darn well better understand them, what it is that makes them tick. 
or we'll make us big fools of ourselves as we did last time. Consider this. Here's the way the Germans handled the visit of Winston Churchill to Moscow. First, a broadcast of the official German news agency on August 2nd. The meeting between Churchill and Stalin was very excited and hysterical. It assumed a dramatic climax when Stalin accused Churchill of betraying the Soviet Union. And this went out from Berlin two days later on August 4th, beamed at the Middle East. Churchill is in Moscow at this moment, where the establishment of a second front is being discussed. And this on August 8th, beamed at England. This morning, Churchill shook hands with Stalin at the Kremlin. The Germans sure are great on detail. But those items were broadcast on August 2nd, 4th, and 8th. And as we now know, Churchill actually arrived in Moscow on August 12th. You can't beat that for a scoop. And they kept right on. This came from Berlin at 9 p.m. on August 16th, beamed at the United States. The true reason for Churchill's trip to Moscow is now known. He wanted to see with his own eyes just how stable the Soviet regime is. And at the same time, to look around for other forces in Russia which would be willing to continue the war against Germany if the Stalin government should suddenly fall. I like that one particularly. It is so vivid. I can just see Churchill sneaking up one street of Moscow and down another, his collar turned up and his hat pulled over his eyes, looking around for the next Russian government. And he had to get a move on because he had promised Stalin he would be back at the Kremlin in time for dinner. What a man. Well, that was August 16th. On the 18th, the British made the official announcement of Churchill's trip, and then Berlin really went to it. They sent dozens of different broadcasts in a dozen different languages in all directions, and no two of them agreed. Here's one beamed at Brazil at 9.15 p.m. on August 18th. How deeply must England have fallen? when her highest minister travels clear to Moscow to crawl before the Bolsheviks. England is now in such a bad spot, there's nothing left for her to do but to make a desperate appeal to the Russians, to plead with them to sacrifice themselves in order to save England. Another on the same date at 5 p.m. The Russian partner is seriously ill, if not already dead. That is why Churchill had to hurry to Moscow to shake hands with the man he hates most. The meeting, we are told, was dramatic. Strong words echoed in the Kremlin. Stalin refused to continue the fight. Churchill warned him that he must carry on. And so it went, Churchill pleading, crawling, warning, threatening, Churchill whining, Churchill thundering demands, all broadcast from Berlin in English, French, Italian, Hungarian, Norwegian, Danish, Finnish, Bulgarian, Afrikaans, Arabic. But the funny thing is, not a single word about it in German. Not a word to the German people. Apparently, Churchill's visit to Moscow was not as tasty a bit of news for the German palate as Berlin tried to make it out. Finally, when the British had themselves broadcasted in German, directed where it would do the most good, casual and slighting references were made to it at the tail end of German broadcasts for home consumption. Uh, it should be obvious that the United States... Beat it, uh... Tojo. I'm working on Germany. Or say we hear one from Italy for a change. It's all the same. This was broadcast from Rome at 5 p.m. on August 21st, beamed at England. Mr. Roosevelt has got himself and his country into such a mess that he is now compelled to turn for help to the despised and ostracized Negro population. Mr. Roosevelt is encouraging the formation of a Negro regiment, and Mr. Knox is pushing Negroes into the Navy. Now they are putting Negro pilots on warplanes wherever there is any danger. The way Americans look at it, Negroes make excellent cannon fodder, 
and they should be proud to die in American uniforms because that is all they are fit for. That broadcast went on like that for ten minutes or more, denouncing us for the way we mistreat the Negroes. Reading it, I was reminded of the time Mussolini's son came over here on a visit and told with glee what great sport it was to dive in his airplane at a crowd of Ethiopian villagers, men, women, and children, and let them have it with the machine guns. I was also reminded of a passage in Mein Kampf, the German's Holy Writ, writ by Adolf Hitler, in which Hitler said... As for the Negro, it does not dawn upon the depraved bourgeois world of America that it is a criminal absurdity to train a born half-ape until it is supposed a lawyer or doctor has been made of him. That it is a sin to let hundreds of thousands of talented men degenerate in the proletarian swamp while Hutton, Tuts, and Zulus are trained for intellectual vocations. And so on and so forth. According to Hitler, we are treating the Negro with a depraved tenderness and sentimentality. According to his Roman lickspittle, we are abusing him abominably and regarding him as fit only for cannon fodder. Both of them would wonder what on earth I was talking about if I told them that one of the things we are fighting this war to preserve is our Negro problem. We're quite aware of all its difficult and ugly aspects, but we also know that in this close association of the black and white races here on our own soil, we're carrying on one of the most interesting and valuable experiments in the development of human society. There are certainly extremists among us. At one end, those who regard Negroes as subhuman beings. And at the other end, those who demand that all of the Negroes' handicaps, social, political, and economic must be abolished by tomorrow noon. But the great majority of us, both Negro and white, accept the problem for what it is. We face it realistically. And we're determined that whatever changes time and patience and intelligence will bring shall be for the common welfare. Steps forward in our march toward a better and a happier world for everybody. That's what I mean when I say that one of the things we are fighting this war to preserve is our Negro problem. It's up to us to work it out, and we're going to do it. And the first step now is to wipe the Nazis and fascists off the face of the earth. Listen to this statement by Dr. Goebbels, broadcast on August 21st. The division of the earth among people was not made by God, but depends on man alone and can be altered at any time. All political and economic questions are merely questions of power and not of morality. You can imagine what would happen to our Negro problem if its solution were left to Dr. Goebbels. In fact, you don't have to imagine it. Read the testimony of any report recently smuggled out of Norway or Poland or Yugoslavia. For to Germans, everyone who is not German is subhuman. And they do not merely talk like that. They act like that. Uh, it should be obvious that the United States... Oh, are... beat it, Tojo. Tell it to the honorable Marines on the Solomon Islands. I have some more German gems here, if I can squeeze them in. Here's one beamed from Berlin at Ireland on August 14th. The most significant of the recent developments in the United States is the re-election of the renowned member of the House of Representatives, Hamilton Fish, who received twice as many votes as all his opponents put together. He's counting his chickens before they're hatched. Mr. Fish was renominated, not re-elected. In November, he may or may not cackle. Here's another gem. On August 19th, Berlin broadcast to England. I recently came across a copy of the American Weekly Life, 
the front page of which proudly sported a photo of an American cavalryman standing by his horse in all the magnificence of his war kit. Well, he went on for 15 minutes sneering not only at the cavalryman, but at the whole darned army and its equipment. It was a terrific indictment. Our soldiers, he said, are a bunch of softies. They wear doe-skin gloves. They chew gum. They insist on eating three times a day. They manicure their nails. Their planes and tanks and guns are a joke. If they ever come face-to-face with a hard-bitten German soldier, they'll drop everything and run. Then he came to his climax. But whatever sense of admiration could have been aroused in our envious breasts by the picture of the American cavalryman, it was unfortunately qualified by the fact that the hand held the reins of a bit, and one branch of the bit was noticeably bent. Now, wouldn't it have been better for the trooper to be gloveless and that his lily-white hand should run all the risks of exposure, but that the bit should be of stronger quality? No comments are needed, but I'll make three. First, don't look at recent copies of Life magazine for it. It was back in April 1941. Second, not the branch of the bit, the shank. Third, the shank was not bent at all. It was merely made with the regulation curve of all cavalry bits. There, I nailed that dastardly lie. Here's another remark about our army. More of it. Coming from Berlin on August 17th, beamed at us. And now that it is becoming fashionable in America to disgrace the military uniform by recruiting soldiers from among the jailbirds, the logical step seems to be first to make Al Capone chief of the general staff of the United States Army and then to place him in command of all the armed forces of the United Nations. Our soldiers seem to be a bunch of softies and a gang of jailbirds at the same time. Quite a trick. Still more about our army, beamed at us the same day, August 17th, an hour earlier than the one you just heard. The English people are relying on Americans to set up that second front in Europe. I can't see any purpose in American soldiers loafing about their camps and wanting to be entertained in English homes and dashing around chasing English girls. One has to think of the English fathers and mothers who are worried about their daughters' virtue. So there emerges the authentic and fascinating picture of the typical American soldier. A jailbird panty waist with doe-skin gloves on his lily-white manicured hands, chewing an enormous wad of gum, pursuing English girls all over the countryside. When he catches one, I suppose he puts a bridle on her with a bent bit. Well, if that is what the German army has been led to expect, somebody is going to be surprised someday... And it won't be me. Uh, it should be obvious that the United States... All right, Tojo, spill it. Uh, it should be obvious that the United States cannot win the war. It is time for thinking Americans to realize the real issues of this war. Japan is sitting on top of the world, controlling the seas from the Aleutians to the Indian Ocean. She controls half the natural wealth of the world, and it is being developed and utilize the strength on our Japan. She is prepared to carry on the war until her enemies are crushed. That's a coincidence. So are we. Sorry, Tojo. Honorable time is up. You have just heard Rex Stout, chairman of the Writers War Board, bringing you another in a series of programs we call Our Secret Weapon, The Truth. It is armor for defense and bullets for attack. Each week at this same time, Mr. Stout will expose more of the lies put out by our enemies 
who hope to bewilder and confuse us as they have the people of little nations they think they've conquered. A copy of tonight's script plus supplementary material will be mailed to everyone who sends a self-addressed stamped envelope to Freedom House, New York, or to the station to which you are listening. And at the same time next week, Columbia brings you another in this new series of programs, Our Secret Weapon. This program was produced by Paul White and directed by John Dietz. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.